Hi, I'm Jordan Sorokin. I'm Forrest Coleman. And I'm Erica Senor. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience. Brought to you by Neurite West and Sanford Radio, KZSU 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Mary Kavana, a postdoc in George Garanzi's lab here at Sanford. Thanks for joining us today, Mary. Thank you. Am I allowed to include a disclaimer that I'm not a neuroscientist? <laughs> I, was about to, I was about to call you out. Yeah. That would come up eventually, I think. So, Mary, we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail. Can you tell us what it is and walk us through how to make it? I can. I'm afraid I can't tell you the name because this is a cocktail that was invented by some friends and me one summer in a, a house owned by my friend's parents in the Cotswolds, which is a very idyllic and lovely part of the UK. And uh, none of us apparently in the haze that followed can remember <laughs> what was in the cocktail. But I, I have ingeniously gathered together many of the ingredients that were there, which include gin, which is the base of all of the cocktails that we make at that house, and uh, apple juice and elderflower cordial, which I'm very impressed that you managed to find in the US because it's not, not particularly common, and some fresh mint. And I'm going to start with some ice and pour a bit of gin over that. And then elderflower. This is actually elderflower liqueur, which makes it even stronger, which is great. And crush up a little bit of mint. Finally, a splash of apple juice, just for the sake of propriety. <laughs> and I'll give that a mix. And we'll have to think of a name because it doesn't have one. Exactly. We have an hour to do so. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Okay, cheers. Cheers. It is, it's really tasty. Yeah, it's very delicious. Okay, so as you brought up, you're not a neuroscientist. Correct. Um, you're actually the first non-neuroscientist we've had on the show so far. What so, Yes, indeed. So first tell us what you do study and why you study it. So I am an immunologist, so I study the immune system. And I came to it from studying infectious diseases. So I started my career as a zoologist and went through a botany phase where I studied um, viral pathogens of barley, which is very important if you're a beer drinker like mm. I am. Yeah. And, Was that uh, your motivation for studying? Primarily. Yes. Really? <laughs> Did the lab have a homebrew set that you could <laughs> test out your, Actually, they your strains? That was, oh. uh, that was an oversight on, on the professor's <laughs> part. And so from there, I got interested in immune responses, which are present in plants as well as in, in animals, and did my PhD on influenza infection, actually, and then um, got interested in the immune system side of things. So rather than looking at the virus, looking at what happens to the human body when the virus infects. And now my PhD, uh, my PhD is over. Thank you. <laughs> Thankfully. Congratulations. <laughs> um, now my postdoc is studying what happens as people get older. So changes to the immune system that happen with age and um, looking at the effects that those changes have on the response to vaccination. I'm sure this is an incredibly detailed question. I, and I hope you having a way to simplify it. I just didn't know that plants had immune systems, and now I'm just wondering what... Go yeah. through the entirety can you, can, of the immune system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you find a way to, to distill for me... Uh, Your entire... This, this bottle of gin is really quite small. Yeah. How, about, how about a simple question? Do plants have antibodies? 
plants do not have antibodies. I, I picked up your accent then. Plants do not have antibodies. But um, they do have certain systems in place to contain and remove infections. Uh, they are subject to infection, as are all living things, and pr are primarily affected by viruses and fungi. Hmm. And they have um, systems in place to contain infections. So sometimes if you see plant leaves that have brown spots on them, those are areas of necrosis. So that's the plant selectively killing cells that have been infected and cells around those cells to contain the infection and stop it from spreading. And actually, plant genetics is incredibly interesting because as an animal, if you are in an unfavorable situation, you can just get up and leave. And plants don't have that option. They have to deal with whatever is, is going on. So they have some very interesting genetics in place to deal with infection and also with drought and changes in temperature. Do they have, are there any sense in which they have an adaptive immune system in the sense that their immune system is able to learn from their environment and, and tune its response in the way that humans do? Do you know, I really don't know. Oh. That's, yeah, that's, that's gone beyond. They do have a system in place to alert other plants that they're being attacked which is fun. It's often referred to as the screaming salad hypothesis <laughs> because uh, if, a, if a leaf is cut into by an insect or by a knife, it will start releasing certain chemicals that are then picked up by the same plant, other, other leaves on the same plant, but also by the plants around it. And then they start doing things like adding layers to their cell wall to make it more difficult for whatever is attacking and producing distasteful mm. compounds. B batten down the hatches. Kind that of. sort of thing. Yeah. So you mentioned that you transitioned from plants to being interested in how viruses affect the human body, so rather than studying the virus itself, studying the effects. Was there a primary motivation to move into more of the human side of that type of research? Was there like a Mainly because reason? I found it more interesting. I think that's been my primary motivation throughout my scientific career. I just find it it fascinating that the immune system is able to cope with such varied such varied things in the environment you know you have the the problem is the immune system has to strike a balance because what it does and what its primary role is to do is to distinguish self from non-self the immune system wants to find things that are non-self and get rid of them but the reality is that we're surrounded by non-self, mm -hmm. and not only externally but internally. We have gut bacteria that are actually very beneficial that we don't want to mount an immune response against. We're constantly breathing in pollen and dust and things that are non-self but that don't actually cause any problems or shouldn't cause any problems um, that the immune system has to tolerate. And it was that balance that really got me interested and excited in the immune system. So you mentioned before that um, you're now studying aging and the immune system. So mm -hmm. how, how does the immune system change as a person ages? It changes in a lot of ways and in many ways that we don't understand. Everybody knows that as you get older, you're much more likely to get sick. Older people are more vulnerable to infection. When they do get infected, they, they do much worse. They're, they're more likely to be hospitalized, for example, if they get an influenza infection. They also respond less well to vaccination. But in addition 
to these things. They they can hyper-respond in some cases to immune stimuluses. So the primary risk factor for autoimmunity is ageing. As people get older, they're much more likely to get autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, where the immune system attacks the body's own tissues. And that is an overreaction of the immune response. So you have cases where the immune response is not responding well enough to infections, but also cases where the immune response is responding too much to self-tissues and causing damage. And the reasons behind this is still quite unclear, but um, it may have something to do with, with survival of specific immune cells. So when you're a baby and a small child, you have an organ called the thymus that sits on top of your heart, and it's producing white blood cells called T-cells. But that organ shrinks and is virtually gone by the time you're in your 20s. So there is no real source of fresh T-cells. So your body has to just cope with what it, whatever it has left. And those cells will, some of them will die and some of them will divide and so replenish the numbers. But the specificity of those cells changes. And we think that that's, that's part of the reason that you become responsive to self-proteins is that those cells are more likely to get uh, survival signals because they're, they're slightly activated by proteins that are in your own body. So they receive a signal to survive and then they expand in number and eventually that, that causes autoimmunity. So just as like general background, what, what are T-cells good for? Like what, 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 are they, what is their basic function in the immune system? So T-cells are a kind of white blood cell. The white blood cells, as we know, form the immune system. And they come in different flavors. And they all have different specialized roles. You have two basic branches of the immune system. We refer to them as the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And the innate immune system is uh, comprised of many different cell types that do not change in response to infection. They provide a sort of first line of defense, and they're there primarily to just eat up bacteria, viruses, cell debris, and uh, provide general control. On the other side, you have the adaptive immune system, and that's the part of the immune system that forms what we call immune memory. And immune memory is provided by antibodies, but it's also provided by T-cells. And T-cells, unlike innate immune cells, are very, very specific to certain things. If you have one T-cell, it can only recognize one thing, not just one virus, but only one small part of that virus. And so the... Individual T-cells are very, very different, and there are only a few of each type. So, so how, does, how does the T-cell remember, quote-unquote, uh, a part of a virus? So that's a very difficult question. So the way a T-cell works is that it has on its surface something that we refer to as the T-cell receptor. And the T-cell receptor recognizes small parts of proteins. And proteins are the things that make up bacteria and viruses and every, pretty much every living thing. And what happens when a T-cell sees the protein for which it is specific is that it gets what we call an activation signal. That activation signal causes it to proliferate. It 
clones itself and it makes hundreds of thousands of millions of itself. It deals with the infection and then most of those cells die but you have a pool of them that are uh, given other signals and, and they're told to survive, essentially. They're told to stick around. So the next time the infection comes around, there are more of them to available to respond to the infection. So they respond very quickly, and in most cases, the infection doesn't even have time to, to get hold. Okay, but all T-cells have receptors. They're all expressing receptors. So what makes this T-cell respond, whereas this one does not? Where ultimately is the difference between those cells? The difference is in the T-cell receptor. So among your genes and your genetic code, all human beings are very, very similar, right? You have 99 point whatever percent of genes are the same. And the genes that make us different are very few and far between. But of those genes, the ones that make us the most different are the genes involved in the immune system. And the way the T-cell receptor works is that when you start with a, a stem cell, that develops slowly into a kind of generic T-cell. And then there's a genetic switch that is switched on at one point in T-cell development that starts to change the arrangement of the T-cell receptor. So it actually cuts out bits of the gene and switches them around, making a sort of a mosaic. So each T-cell does that differently. So you end up with each T-cell having a very individual T-cell receptor. So actually, we're not all, this, every cell in our body doesn't have the same genetic code. And in fact, the T-cells are, in a very important way, they have right. different a different set of DNA than T-cells. Yeah, yeah. And that's even true of identical twins. Cool. So are, where do the T-cells live? So they come from the thymus originally, and then they're just circulating through the blood the entire time? Right. And that, that depends on... Um, whether they've been exposed to anything before. So another part of immune memory is that T-cells actually get information of where the infection occurred. So if, for example, you get a respiratory infection like influenza, uh, the T-cells will be printed with a code that tells them to stick around the lungs mm -hmm. because it's more than likely that if that's the way the infection came in once, that's the way it'll come in again. So they stay there, and they'll stay there forever. But yeah, most of the rest of the time, they're circulating around the body. They also go to the lymph nodes, which are the sort of s sites of initiation of the immune response. And they're, they're just wandering around looking for trouble. <laughs> I like that. So neuroscientists are kind of obsessed with the memory. <laughs> memory, right? Um, and, and we love to, to try to, you know, there was a very famous paper last year about implanting, you know, doing inception on a mouse and implanting a false memory, you know, and, and people are uh, interested in trying to, you know, read memories. So our immunologists must similarly be obsessed with the idea of implanting and removing memories from the immune system. What, Absolutely. What, what, can, what can immunologists do with respect to inception or eternal sunshine of the spotless <laughs> mind on the immune system? So um, actually that's, that's a very good analogy because one form of implanting an immune memory is vaccination. And if you vaccinate someone, the whole idea is that you try and fool the immune system into thinking there's an infection going on when really there's no danger to the host or the person at all. And by adding small parts of viruses or bacteria or the whole virus or bacteria that's been weakened in some way, we can expose the immune system to that infection 
and implant a false memory and make it remember then when you get infected for real, those, those memory T-cells and antibodies are there already to protect you. So are these memories subject to an analogy in neuroscience is that a lot of memories require recollection or active engagement to maintain the memory in a consistent manner over time? Are these memories, do they act in a similar way? Yeah, there's some evidence to suggest that they do, but it's often infection-specific. So, yeah, no one really knows uh, what what the difference is between those two types of memory. If we did, that would be amazing. And there's no clear reason for why some immune memories require that and why others don't. If I just, like, jab myself with, like, a, a rusty nail every <laughs> few years, would that, like... I mean, you can try it. Presume... <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like a really good... No one, yeah. no <laughs> Please don't. Would that reactivate it. my memory and I wouldn't need the booster shots? I mean, I hate getting shots, but rusty nails, but rusty that, nails sounds, that sounds better. So what about the opposite, about uh, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind? I mean, certainly that would be amazing if you could do so, it. So I assume yeah. you can't. <laughs> uh, you you really can't and people are trying because uh, again going back to autoimmunity if mm -hmm. you could somehow convince the immune system that collagen is not a danger then you could alleviate a lot of immune pathologies like rheumatoid arthritis or if you could convince them that islet cells in the pancreas are not a threat then you would eliminate diabetes and there are the main treatments at the moment are immunosuppressive treatments, particularly mm -hmm. for rheumatoid arthritis. And those come with their own dangers. If you suppress the immune system, you're more likely to get an infection. But is it conceptually true that presumably there there's some specific set of cells that are lurking in your body that if you could just find them and kill them, it, this would do the trick? Yeah. Well, potentially you could just target them with an antibody, right, that has its own kill code in it, right, if you can bind it to those T-cells that carry the receptor for that particular antibody. So what's wrong with that idea? So it's that, hard. That's very <laughs> difficult. And even when, even supposing that we knew what the antigen was, so the antigen is the thing that is being recognized by the T-cell receptor, even if we knew what that was, not only each individual person would have a different T-cell receptor that recognized that antigen, but within each person, several different T-cells would recognize that. Mm -hmm. So it, it's very difficult to target antibodies against the T-cell receptor. So um, you, you were talking about how the immune system changes with aging, and you said that you're less likely to have a proper response to an outside infection, but you're more likely to have an autoimmune response, so like rheumatoid arthritis. So if we're talking about intensity of the response, is the rheumatoid arthritis response, is it at the same level? So are, are we talking about the immune system becomes bad at setting off a large response or that it gets confused and it can't recognize what is an attack and what isn't an attack? And so that, that way you're still getting a large response to something in your own body, but maybe not recognizing something from the outside. Yeah, it's, it's more the latter. So the response to self-tissues in something like arthritis is really, really quite strong. And mm -hmm. uh, that's why it causes so much damage and it can be incredibly painful. And the responses to things like influenza become dampened. Do we have any idea why that happens? 
It's a million dollar question. <laughs> um, there, are, there are some ideas as to why that happens. And again, they have to do with selective survival of T cells and also changes to changes to T cell signaling. And um, T cells, like a lot of cells, like I'm sure neurons presumably have an activation threshold, a mm. level below which they will not respond. And that changes a lot. Uh, during aging and you also with t-cells have um, sort of homeostatic responses responses that basically keep the immune system going even if there's nothing going on even if there's no infection going on you don't want all your t-cells to go away you want them to survive and there are survival factors in the body that do that and as you age you may even become more responsive to those so so you get increased responses to homeostatic signals and things that perhaps you don't want to respond as strongly mm -hmm. to and decrease responses to more specific things like infections that you do want to respond to. Yeah. So in neuroscience, we have this, there's this idea about how you reduce the strength of connections between neurons called LTD. And generally you get LTD when you get, you know, synapses go from the presynaptic cell to the postsynaptic cell. And so if you, if you activate the presynaptic cell, but the postsynaptic cell doesn't go off, that tends to cause the connection between those two cells to go down. You were speaking about these survival signals that are causing the T cells to either stick around or proliferate versus versus not. Is the idea is there a similar idea that you might be able to kind of stimulate the T cells a little bit but not enough to in other words you're like in, putting on the input but you're not getting the postsynaptic the analogous postsynaptic response, response and that gets yeah. I, I, I had this vague idea that this is how this is how people people try to do this with with extreme allergies that you give this like very small amount yeah. of the allergen and kind of put the input without setting off the immune system or like a vaccine too. Yeah, right. So with allergies, when what you want to do is almost you want to desensitize someone, so you want to show them the allergen in a non-dangerous context almost. Mm. I was talking earlier about the balance between responding to things that cause infections and not responding to things that don't. An allergy is a very good example of when that goes wrong. And um, if, you, if you can show the immune system an allergen in a context that is not dangerous, then you can start to train it to ignore it. And the best way of doing that, or one of the best ways of doing that, is to introduce the allergen orally. So people will eat and digest, you know, pieces of house dust mite and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the mm. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. Huh? Um, and the w one of the reasons that that might work is that your gut is a very immunosuppressive place. It is constantly exposed to non-self, and it doesn't want an immune response to go off every time it is. So there are mechanisms in place to suppress the immune system within the gut. And if the immune system sees an allergen within that context, it learns not to respond. On the other hand, when you're talking about vaccines, you're introducing something that you do want a response to, but in a non-dangerous context, there is no infection going on. And when there is an infection going on, there's all sorts of other things flying around. You have dead cells, you have released ATP and other chemicals around that activate the immune response. So in a vaccine, we have to simulate that. And we add things called adjuvants that um, provide 
quote-unquote danger signals to the immune system. So it sees something that isn't a danger within a dangerous context, and it learns to respond. Is this why we sometimes feel a little bit sick after we get the vaccine? So speaking of allergies, so there's this theory, and I don't know how well proved it's been at this point, of allergies, this negative correlation between the amount in a population of parasitic infection and allergens. So if you have very little parasites, like in the United States, you have a very high rate of people with allergies. And if you have a very high rate of people with parasite infections, you have like no allergies, basically. So the idea is then it's the immune system I get bored, nothing better to do. So it starts just overreacting to everything. So when we're talking about the immune system changing due to aging and you become more hyper-reactive to your own self rather than the other, is there any correlation or does it make sense for there to be any relationship between somebody who has maybe they get colds like every you know a few times a year and then not having rheumatoid arthritis? Or, you know what I mean? So it's like if you get these outside infections more regularly, are you less likely to have an autoimmune disorder or autoimmune response? That's a very good question, and I really don't know. One thing that does spring to mind is that during pregnancy, rheumatoid arthritis symptoms go down. Oh, that's interesting. Pregnancy is an interesting case because you your body immunosuppresses itself because mm-hmm. it's trying not to reject your baby, which is, of course, non-self. And it also switches the balance so your your immune system has different responses to different kinds of infections if you have a bacterial infection you want to respond in a very different way than if you have a parasitic infection Um, the connection between parasitic infections and allergies is that a lot of the same things are produced so if you have a parasite in your gut one of the things that will make it let go is histamine and those histamines are also produced when you have allergies which is why you take antihistamines And so when you're pregnant, that side of your immune response, that arm, is is increased relative to the other the other arm, which is a more classically inflammatory bacterial and viral response. And that is the same response that is going on when you have arthritis. Hmm. So these changes in balance do happen. So what are you working on currently in lab? Um, What I'm working on at the moment is how, well, a few different things. One of the things I'm working on is how the immune response to vaccination changes with age. So what we're doing is taking older people and vaccinating them against shingles, which is the reactivation of the chickenpox virus and happens, again, much more commonly in older people than in younger people. And we're comparing responses to the vaccine in people in middle age with the responses to the vaccine in people in older age. And we're looking at what the, what the differences are in response and how long the protection, if there is protection, lasts and what the underlying reasons for those differences are. Is the shingle vaccine different than the chickenpox vaccine? It's actually the same vaccine, but it's a much, much higher dose. Hmm. It's about a 40-fold dose. So what have you found so far? What we found so far, we haven't published anything yet, so I won't get into specifics. <laughs> but um, what we found so far is pretty interesting because <clears throat> even as people are getting into their 70s and 80s, they still mount a very robust response to the vaccine. When you inject them with the vaccine, they do everything they're supposed to do. Their T cells proliferate, they start producing antibodies. But 
what's interesting is that they don't seem to be able to maintain that response for as long as people in their 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. So the initial response is fine, but the maintenance of that response, uh, the decrease is much sharper. So the potential there is that we may have to vaccinate older people more often. Is the state of technology to the point that one can actually go in and sequence the DNA and find the induced change in the distribution of receptors after this vaccine, after a vaccination? So can you tell whether or not the memory has been written, has really been written in, or whether just you got T-cells proliferating for sort of less specific reasons or something? That's a great question. That's something that we, we really are doing, yeah. So mm-hmm. we're looking at, you can pull out T-cells that are specific for a virus or whatever it is you're looking at. We're looking at a virus. And we can pull out those T-cells using tetramers, which were developed here at Stanford. So you can just draw blood? Is you that... can draw blood, and okay. that's what we do. And we induce the T-cells to divide by adding virus in a petri dish and they they then start proliferating and we can monitor that proliferation using dyes and then we can pull out the t-cells and sequence their t-cell receptors and as you say look for which t-cell receptors clones so which specific groups of t-cells are dividing and which ones are not how similar this is another super basic question how similar are the the memories, you know, if I'm going to call it, continue to call it that, the, the, differences, the differences in the receptor from one person to the next? If you pulled out, you gave all, you know, 100 people the vaccine and you did what you just described and took their blood, proliferated their T cells, and then looked at the content of the memory and the receptors, how similar would, would their memories for the chickenpox vaccine be? So qualitatively, um, fairly similar if you're a similar age. Um, in terms of the specific sequence, we don't know, and that's one of the things that we're looking at now. Hmm. So are you looking at uh, changes in the genetic level or in the RNA level or the protein level? So when a T-cell undergoes that change that I was talking about earlier, rearrangements to make a unique T-cell receptor, Mm -hmm. it actually changes the DNA. That's interesting. So the same way that like your mitochondria DNA is derived initially from another organism, is that DNA derived from some other organism? No. Okay. You don't normally think of like cells in your own body having their yeah. own yeah. genome, essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? That's, like you just don't think of that. That's what makes the, the immune system so unique. Yeah. And they do, it's, it's, it's weird because each cell will still have all of the available genes, mm-hmm. but the only functioning segment will be different mm-hmm. for each T-cell. So obviously when humans are born, their brains develop completely from scratch. But one of the things about you know, uh, DNA is that it's passed on from your mother to your father. So to what, how, what are the... From your mother to your father? <laughs> <laughs> one of That's the... an interesting family you have there for us. <laughs> <laughs> the genes are passed on from your mother and father to you. <laughs> And and so I'm wondering, um, are there mechanisms for kind of resetting the memory of the immune system as when you when you were born? Why isn't the chicken pox vaccine passed on when uh, my dad or mom uh, got it? So the reason is that your developing fetus is not created by T cells or B cells. It's created by eggs and sperm. And the eggs and sperm have not undergone that rearrangement that T cells and, and B cells have. 
one thing that you can get um, and do get from uh, your mother is uh, what we call passive protection. So any antibodies that your mother has in her blood will be transferred to the fetus and also through breast milk. So provide some level of protection before the child has a chance to develop its own immunity. So this is a little bit tangential, but I'm just curious. So in AIDS, you have... The reason why it kills people is because you get such a huge loss in your T cells. And there are some people who are immune to AIDS. And is that through their T cells? And if it is, could you then take T cells from individuals who are immune to it and then implant it into somebody who has AIDS and let them divide enough that they can kill the virus? So I'm not super familiar with HIV. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem with transplanting T cells from one person into another person is that they're recognized as non-self and destroyed. Right. Damn you, immune system. (laughs) um, So, but one thing that people are looking at uh, within the HIV field is transplanting antibody because antibodies are conserved enough from one person to another to not be rejected and you have what we call broadly neutralizing antibodies which can um, target several parts of the virus the complicated thing about HIV is that it has a very high mutation rate so it can escape the immune system very easily as soon as the immune system finds something that it recognizes all of the other virus particles change Mm. So they can avoid the immune system. Broadly neutralizing antibodies target so many things at once that the virus doesn't have time to change. And that's one of the things that people... So no one... There was one case in Germany of someone who potentially cleared the HIV infection, but I don't think that was ever substantiated. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I haven't heard of any. You get what we call uh, long-term non-progressors, so people who are infected with HIV but never develop full-blown AIDS, which is acquired immunodeficiency syndrome and those people often have lots of these broadly neutralizing antibodies all right so a recent paper from emmanuel Mignot's lab here at sanford provides really strong evidence to support his theory that he's been studying for about a decade now that narcolepsy is an autoimmune disorder so first for anyone not familiar can you uh explain briefly what narcolepsy is and then talk a little bit about uh Mignot's findings So narcolepsy is a disease where people are unable to control wakefulness. Narcolepsy affects um, neurons that produce a compound called HCRT that's uh, a hypocretin. And it's produced in the lateral hypothalamus and it goes throughout the central nervous system and makes us feel awake. The autoimmune component of that is that these neurons are destroyed by the body's immune system so they stop producing hypocretins so you are unable to control when you are awake and when you are asleep. One of the main focuses of studies of narcolepsy is whether there is some amount of cross-reactivity between hypocretin and uh, some component of an infection. So in some cases of narcolepsy the diagnosis of the disease is preceded by an infection. It's often a, a res- upper respiratory tract infection, and often it's influenza. And so there is a theory that something in influenza is mimicking, or it looks enough like hypocretin. So the influenza infection kicks off the response. It shows you, it shows the immune response, that protein within a dangerous context, within an infectious context. And after that infection is over, the immune system sees the same protein or something similar enough within 
those neurons or within hypercretin and it starts attacking them and it, it removes them. All right. So how do I know that when I have an influenza infection that the problem was there all along uh, and it wasn't some cross-reactivity between influenza and hypercretin, but rather I just activated my immune system and I caused T cells to proliferate and sure some that were, and since I already had the problem and I was already had T cells that were reactive to hypercretin, I just proliferated those. And once I made enough of them, I made enough to actually kill all the neurons or, or something. Yeah. So, th so that's a great question that is actually a, a possibility. So another possibility is what we refer to as bystander activation. So you have a random infection and it could be anything. And um, it's, it's that that just causes a general inflammatory environment in the body that then activates T cells. A bit of evidence to suggest that that might not be the case is that um, particularly in the Far East where there is a lot of influenza infection, the diagnosis of narcolepsy in children is seasonal. So after hmm. the influenza season, a lot of children come into the hospital to be diagnosed with narcolepsy. And if it were just any infection, you would not expect to see that seasonal pattern. Does the debate that we just have... Um is that a central, of central importance to understanding whether or not vaccines are causing problems, actually causing problems, as opposed to simply setting off problems? Well, I don't think it's so. I, I think it's important to mention that in necroleptic patients, and this is something actually that Mignot's lab has shown, is that at least all of the patients, 100% that they've done studies, lots and lots of patients, if you have narcolepsy with cataplexy, so cataplexy is when you lose your muscle tone and you, that's sort of like the stereotypical view of a narcoleptic patient. They lose the muscle tone and they fall asleep. So that's narcolepsy with cataplexy. And if you have that, 100% of the patients that have been studied have a mutation in a particular gene. I think it's hypercretin 2. I might be mistaken, but it's very specific. So it's going to be you know, whatever immune response is then attacking these cells, it's going to be specific to how that mutation is changing the expression of that gene, of that protein. And so I think in that way, it's a little bit more, I think that sort of improves their argument a little bit because it's saying, you know, this mutation, it's not, because then why doesn't everybody get narcolepsy, right, if you have the, have a flu? So then it's more specific to this particular form of the protein that is similar enough, I guess, to the influenza or whatever other invading species that the immune response attacks it and kills these neurons. And I think it also has to do with the way the immune system processes and presents the influenza virus to other parts of the immune system. Mm -hmm. So the T cell response is absolutely reliant on other types of cells that take up, they gobble up pieces of viruses, whole viruses, break them up and then show them to the T cells. And the way that they do that is through a protein called HLA, the human leukocyte antigen. And that is the most variable gene within the human body. It's the thing that is responsible for transplant rejection. Mm -hmm. It's the thing that's most different between you and me. And uh, one thing that they've certainly found in narcoleptic cataplexic patients is that they tend to be um, HLA-DQB1. Mm -hmm. So that's a specific kind of HLA. And they also have mutations in different proteins that are associated with that process of taking up the virus, chopping it up, loading it onto this HLA protein, and then showing it to the T cell. So there's something about 
the way that that happens that then mimics this protein hypocretin that's in the neurons that then causes this autoimmune disease. So in the narcolepsy case, you have loss of the cells. The cells are killed. Basically, the, the body kills those cells. So that's one sort of example of an autoimmune, autoimmune disorder that affects the brain. Um, how other ways do does the immune system affect the brain? And particularly in you know different types of neurodegenerative diseases, there appears to be a large immune buddy. <laughs> a little bit drunk. <laughs> Yay! You see, try and remember the recipe for this cocktail tomorrow and you won't be able to. Try to remember the interview. <laughs> um, so neurodegenerative diseases certainly have an immune component. There are immune cells. Component. Component. That was the word I was thinking of. <laughs> there are immune cells that sit in the brain. They're called microglia. And they, they mediate uh, interactions between the brain and the rest of the immune system and um, there is mounting evidence to suggest that the immune system is involved in diseases such as Parkinson's um, and that's a huge area of study. It's not my area of study <laughs> so I won't say too much about it for fear of embarrassment but I think it's certainly a developing area and one that, one that we really could do with understanding more. Mm -hmm. So after you finish your postdoc, your goal is to leave academia and America to curate a science museum in London. <laughs> the assumption being that it's typical for most graduate students and most, if not all, postdocs in science to want to stay in academia and eventually run their own lab. Um, can you tell us more about what made you decide this decision? Like, at what point in your career did you decide this? And how has it, like, shaped you know, kind of your last few years as a postdoc? Yeah, so I definitely started my postdoc with that same goal. I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to run my own lab. And gradually throughout the course of my postdoc, um, I came to realize that that's not really what I want. And it took me a long time to feel like that wasn't a failure. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of people within academia feel. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> and I think that that's rather worrying because there really just aren't enough academic jobs for everyone who is a postdoc to be an academic. So I think to think that you're a failure because you're not going to be an academic is ridiculous because 90% of us won't be. Or um, I think quite accurately, 80% of 80%, us 80%. Oh, I do beg your pardon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, just to be clear, that's not an exaggeration, yeah, right? That, yeah, that if yeah. you look at the number of people who Absolutely. have academic jobs, yeah. you know, six years out of their postdoc, right. it's like 20%. And so one of the things that I've always liked, you might be able to tell, is talking about science. Mm -hmm. And I have been gradually becoming familiar with the museum sector and with learning in an informal setting. And I really like it. And <laughs> I really enjoy yeah. um, talking to people about science, getting people excited about science. And I think right now I enjoy that more than doing my own science, at least within an academic environment, which has other pressures. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's the plan at the moment. I will leave America because my visa will expire. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm moving back to London because that's the centre of the universe. <laughs> yeah. Were your uh, colleagues and friends and family supportive of the idea, or was there some 
tension. Yeah, I did. I had this wonderful conversation with my advisor, who was very supportive and lovely. And I told him that I didn't want to be an academic. And he looked at me in a sort of confused way and said, oh, you're very good at it, you know. (laughs) Oh, no, he said, you're quite good at it. Sorry, quite good. (laughs) You're quite good at it. And... I think he was just confused in in the sense that you know if you if you can do this why wouldn't you want to mm-hmm. um and I think that that's a lot of people within academia feel that way which in a sense is great because they cannot imagine wanting to do anything else um my family have been wonderful and supportive as they always have been so um in a sense it's been quite easy for me but I think I have I have been trained in such a way that I still occasionally wonder if I'm not just trying to take the easy way out, which is ridiculous because... I mean, you pursued a PhD that's <laughs> not taking the easy way out. <laughs> so you seem pretty happy with your decision now. Was it difficult, though, when you were coming it's, to yeah, this choice? It, it, it really was difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think it is difficult because we're all working in this environment that is really quite insular, where the the only options we really see are those within an academic setting. Mm-hmm. Within industry as well, that's becoming more of an open door. But anything outside of that is sort of tarred with the brush of being an alternative career. Mm-hmm. And um, not not exactly frowned upon, but sort of seen as... I mean, the word alternative is just... Yeah, yeah when, when 80% right. of people are taking an alternative career, it seems... That that's not academia is the alternative. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's something that I did think about for a very long time, and not a decision that I'm taking lightly, and not a decision that I've completely fully made. I think, mm-hmm. but I'm certainly feeling excited about moving into new things, and I've been very much enjoying volunteering at the Palo Alto Junior Museum and Zoo, uh-huh. which you should all come to. Yeah, can you talk to us more about that? Oh, sure. Yeah, please. (laughs) Yeah, I love talking about the zoo. The Palo Alto Junior Museum and Zoo is in Palo Alto. It's a free resource for anyone who wants to come. If you have a child, all the better. If you don't, that's fine. We'd love to come (laughs) and see you. We have a science museum that um, at the moment has exhibitions about renewable energy. And we also have a small zoo with bobcats, with raccoons, with owls. Uh, I love the owls. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, yeah, we work to increase uh, awareness about science and introduce people to the animals. It's great fun. So given that you plan on leaving research science, um, which you seem very happy about, (laughs) have you at any point maybe regretted doing a PhD or doing a postdoc? Certainly not, no. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing to remember is that doing a PhD and doing a postdoc is not only training to be an academic. You learn many, many things being a PhD student and being a postdoc that are useful for all sorts of different careers. You learn discipline and you learn how to ask effective questions. You Mm. learn time management. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think you learn to think in a way that is different, which is important for all manner of things. And I think that many industries could benefit from having more PhD and postdocs um, 
within those industries. So do you think that more students should come into a PhD expecting to not be an academic? I'm not sure if they should expect that. There was a thing that was sent around recently from the ASCB blog that was analyzing data taken from the uh, 2012 NIH Workforce Report. that, And the, the top right-hand panel of this little infographic says, quote, at this rate, less than 8% of entering PhD students will become tenure-track faculty. Wow. Oh, man. Right, but I don't know. If you if you want to be a 100-meter sprinter, I don't think you would start your training assuming that you're not going to win an Olympic <laughs> yeah. gold medal. Yeah. I Fair think enough. it's important to have ambition and to enter something with passion and with conviction. But it's also important to keep your head up and look around you and mm-hmm. realize that you you may need to have a backup plan. And your backup plan doesn't have to be boring or easy um, and because of that you should think about the things that you should be doing to make your backup plan possible. Are there opportunities that you maybe had during your PhD or at various points during your educational process that in retrospect you wish you had taken and, and you didn't take because you were so focused on, you know, there, there's always a priority whenever you spend amount of time. I mean, I'm here doing this interview as opposed mm-hmm. to writing a paper or, or writing code or, or doing experiments, <laughs> right? So I could be, I could be working in, in the and lab. Right? Be. And should yeah. <laughs> And there's a certain sense that I really should be, right? I'm right. clearly, you know. So I, looking back, do you wish that you re, re, reprioritize things uh, at various points? Maybe. I think when I first came to Stanford, certainly, I got so excited because it's such an exciting place, depending on your definition of that word, I suppose. <laughs> and um, I threw myself into my project, and it was the only thing that I saw. And in, in hindsight, I probably should have taken a moment to step back and, and look at all the resources that are available at Stanford, because there really are so many. And it's not not just at Stanford, but living in and around the Bay Area, there's so much going on mm. um, that... I feel that maybe I missed a bit of that. I'm quite bad at focusing, so that wasn't a huge problem for me <laughs> for very long. Um, so I did I did eventually look up and, and see that there was other stuff going on, and I would encourage others to do the same. Uh, should we play our, our favorite game? I on think it's time for the game. All right, oh sweet. Okay, so the game is called Not My Field. So we're going to ask you three questions, and each question you'll have three paper titles. And so one of the titles is a real paper published in a real journal, and the other two are made up. And so it's your job to figure out which is the real paper and which are the made-up papers. This journal may or may not be peer-reviewed. Right. <laughs> okay, so are you ready? I'm ready. All right, question one, option A. Beauty is in the eye of the beer holder. People who think they are drunk also think they are attractive. Option B. Flatulence decreases the perceived attractiveness of females, but not males, by both men and women. Or option C. Correlations between accents and perceived accuracy of statements. Well, I don't know. I I would go with C. C. Accents. Okay. I'm going to... You would think that, wouldn't you? you? Would, you would yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was a trick question for you. Oh. We were totally loading it. That is, that is incorrect. <laughs> the correct answer is A. Yeah. You know, I would feel like that probably is a real paper somewhere. Like, I feel like people trust people with British have... accents better than, like... Not, oh, not only that, because absolutely. within the UK, 
there's definite correlations. People, um, companies in call centres use people with specific accents because mm-hmm. they're more, quote, trustworthy than... What is the oh, trustworthy English accent called? Well, there, there are many and they change. Oh. And actually, Scottish accents are considered trustworthy and uh-huh. pleasing to the ear. If you're, in, if you're British, if you're American, you need subtitles, apparently. <laughs> so I'll read you from the extract. So the correct paper was, Beauty is in the eye of the beer holder. People who think they are drunk also think they are attractive. So this is from the, the British Journal of Psychology. You should have known this. I, you're British. I read all oh my God. Of the journals that have <laughs> British in the title. So this research examines the role of alcohol consumption on self-perceived attractiveness. Study one carried out in a bar room showed that the more alcoholic drinks customers consumed, the more attractive they thought they were. Um, <laughs> the best being that it's carried out in a bar room, yeah. Yeah. Not, not a laboratory. Very after controlled. Con- <laughs> after consuming beverages, they delivered a speech and rated how attractive, bright, original, and funny they thought they were. These speeches were videotaped and rated by 22 independent judges. Results showed that participants who thought they had consumed alcohol gave themselves more positive self-evaluations. However, ratings from independent judges showed that this boost in self-evaluation was unrelated to actual performance. <laughs> How beautiful do you feel right now? <laughs> I feel really beautiful right That's now. Und- undisclosed. Really I feel like I'm really smart and clever right now. And you are. <laughs> you skipped over the most important part, though. In study yeah. two, 94 non-student participants in a bogus taste test study were given either an alcoholic beverage, target blood alcohol level of 0.01 grams per 100 milliliters, a non-alcoholic beverage with each with half of each group believing they had consumed alcohol and half believing they had not so it's regardless of whether or not you consumed actual alcohol if you believe you consumed alcohol (laughs) you believe you're more beautiful yeah yeah even more amazing (laughs) so question two is it a canine panting rate as a correlate measure for the steady of rise in global warming or b Heavy rains report to induce salient daydreams of childhood memories, a new understanding of weather-related automobile fatalities. Or C, chicken plucking as a measure of tornado wind speed. <laughs> um, gosh, these are difficult. <laughs> After two, what did we call this cocktail? Well, you, so initially... The synthetic memory? Yeah. Synthetic memory, or was it... The neurodegenerator. neurodegenerator. It might be the latter. That one might be more. Yeah, the neurodegenerator. <laughs> that sounds better, actually. Yeah. After two of those, I think I'll go with B. So from the abstract, one way of estimating the wind in a tornado vortex is to determine by experiment <laughs> what airspeed is required to blow off all the feathers of a chicken. This is A phenomenon known to occur in severe storms. That happens. Yeah, I guess that happens. Yeah. So, but the the findings Although, of I, this paper was that it is not a good index yeah. of it. Yeah, it was found <laughs> the that last, the last <laughs> are amazing. It was found that the force required to remove the feathers from follicles varies over a wide range in a complicated and unpredictable way, and depends on the chicken's condition and his reaction to his environment. Therefore, the plucking phenomenon is a doubtful value as an index. Yeah. Sadly, we can't post hoc rate. Uh, category five <laughs> tornadoes by the degree of chicken plucking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. On the other hand, the, the tornadoes <laughs> apparently the tornadoes that just went through the middle of America, you can see and now on satellite maps as you know, as a wow. line as a line through the yeah. through the right yeah. So okay. Um, and the last three, I get a chance to regain my dignity. Hey, you're zero for two, man. You got to get this one. Yeah, we have it. <laughs> All right, three A. A study of the effects of water content 
on the compaction behavior of breakfast cereal flakes. 3b. Arose by any other name, the effect of self-described ugly sounding names on the perceived attractiveness of others. And 3c. The inebriating effects of reverse osmosis treatment of sparging water on DIY home brewers. Wow. <laughs> First of all, do you know what sparging water is? I have no is? idea. <laughs> so uh, for non-home brewers, sparging water is when you're steeping your your barley to get the sugars out that you can ferment with yeast and create beer. You sparge, you just pour hot water on top of those grains to extract the last remaining sugars. Hmm. Yeah. Based on your knowledge of that, I'm going to assume that you made that up. <laughs> <laughs> That was, that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, um, I'm going to go with B. Okay. Well, you're correct that I did make that up. But unfortunately, oh. <laughs> a study of the effects of water content on the compaction behavior of breakfast cereal flakes. So a bit on the abstract. Can I have half a point? <laughs> no. One third of a no. point. So wheat breakfast flakes were compacted in a cylindrical geometry using two different techniques and the volume measured as a function of applied pressure from 100 uh, PA to 85 mega PA. The effective water content in the range of 4 to 18% uh, wet weight basis on the compaction behavior of the flakes was examined. The most important part of the study, collectively, these results agree qualitatively with other observations of the decrease in stiffness of single flakes over this water content range. Shocking. My favorite, I'm, I'm my favorite part of this paper is the the title of the publication in which it was published, which is called Powder Technology. <laughs> Powder yeah. Technology. Yeah. I must subscribe. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us thank today, you. Mary. Thank you. I really had fun. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Boris Heifetz, an anesthesiologist and postdoctoral scholar in Rob Malenka's lab here at Stanford. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and Stanford KZSU 90.1 FM. This episode of Brains and Bourbon was produced by Erica Senor, Forrest Coleman, Jordan Sorokin, and myself. You can find all of the previous episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast, NeuroTalk, and read articles about everything neuroscience by going to our website, www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U. W-R-I-T-E-West.org.